Hello, and welcome to this discussion hosted by the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion. I'm Jessica Hughes, and I'm joined today by John Maiden, Senior Lecturer in Religious Studies here at the Open University, and by Emma-Jane Graham, Senior Lecturer in Classical Studies. And we're very happy to welcome Dr Theodora Jim, who's visiting us from the University of Nottingham to talk about her work on ancient Greek votives and concepts of divine saving. Theodora, a key concept in your work is this idea of soteria, which many people translate as divine saving. So could you start by telling us about this word and how you're translating it? Soteria is a Greek word which first appeared in Greek literature in the early 5th century BC. It's attested for the first time in the writing of Herodotus when he talks about the Persian Wars. Of course, if you read Homer, you'll find a motif of divine saving already a prominent theme. But it's not until the 5th century that the concern was conceptualized by the abstract noun sorcerer. It's quite possible that the Persian invasions led to a new consciousness among the Greeks of the importance of sorcerer. Now, this is actually a very difficult word to translate. It can be variously rendered as deliverance, safety, preservation, and so on, depending on context. But the difficulty is that none of these English words can capture its full range of meanings. The Greek word was so broad in meaning that there's no perfect equivalent in English. Depending on the situation in which it is used, we may need to use different translations with different emphases in different contexts. It's very tempting to translate sorcery as salvation. The same Greek word is also used in Christianity not least in the New Testament. But I'll avoid the word salvation because it can be potentially misleading. When the word was used by the Greeks, it actually carried no connotations with the afterlife. Instead, it has to do with deliverance from troubles in this life rather than the next. So which of the gods were most closely linked with soteria or divine saving in the ancient Greek world? And what kind of evidence do we have for these gods and their cults? In ancient Greeks, there wasn't a single exclusive god overseeing the soteria of the Greeks. Instead, worshippers would turn to a multiplicity of gods for divine saving. Depending on the situation, some gods might be more closely linked with saving than others. For example, when the Greeks were on campaign, the commoner saviour gods they appealed to were Zeus, Athena and Artemis. Where seafaring is concerned, we have a large number of divine saviours. Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, Athena, the Dioscoroi, Heracles, Isis, Poseidon and Tuke are all attested as saviours at sea. But when the Greeks needed both good health or restoration to health, most of the time the saviour god was Asclepius, although Hugeia and Isis are also attested as saviours. It's not surprising to find the Greeks turning to a range of different gods for sorcery. The principle of Greek polytheism is that different gods had different specialism, and the Greeks would need many gods on their side. If I have to pin down the most popular and most powerful saviour god, that would be Zeus. He was widely invoked in different spheres of life, and he was chosen probably out of a sense that he exercised ultimate control over everything. As for evidence, we find saviour gods in both literary and epigraphic sources. 
I've used more inscriptional than literary sources in my research because I'm interested in the lived experience of the Greeks rather than the literary motif of divine saving. There are hundreds and thousands of inscriptions left by the Greeks themselves after they were saved by the gods. It's a common practice to set up a dedication with an inscription to commemorate the event. In these inscriptions, the idea of divine saving can be expressed in various ways, such as by using the Greek verb zosing to save, the epithet sote meaning savior, and also the abstract noun soteria. So you've been working on this research project on divine saving for a few years now. Do you have any broad conclusions that you'd like to share before we start thinking about divine saving in other periods and places? Well, one observation I made is that divine saving isn't necessarily related to situations of crisis. We tend to think of divine saving as relevant only when somebody encountered a real danger. But in fact, in ancient Greeks, divine saving was about maintaining your existing well-being as much as being delivered from actual dangers. Divine saving need not be something miraculous, extraordinary, or life-transforming. It can be no more than preserving one's status quo. But the distinction between these different uses of sorcery is not clear-cut. These are just two sides of the same coin if we consider human life as constantly fluctuating between danger and safety. Um, a second observation is the practical and down-to-earth nature of divine saving. The word sorcery was almost always used in relation to problems in this life rather than the next. I'm not saying that there are no Greek counts or Greek gods related to the afterlife, but concern with the afterlife wasn't expressed by the language of sorcerer. It's not until much later, under the influence of Christianity, that we occasionally see the word used in relation to the afterlife, but that's not what the word originally meant in ancient Greek religion. EJ, let's think about Roman and pre-Roman Italy now. Do we have any similar material from the sites that you've worked on? Yes and no. I mean, I've worked a lot on um, votive offerings, particularly terracotta anatomical votive offerings from sort of the 4th, 2nd or early 1st century BCE in sort of central Italy. And one thing that we don't get amongst that sort of material, and we don't seem to get in Italy, in the same way that you might find at, say, some of the really big sanctuaries um, in Greece, such as those associated with um, Asclepius at Epidaurus, um, and also some of the examples that Theodora showed us in her talk, are images with narratives about what seems to be some sort of divine saving. So that is, we don't find reliefs that might show a person perhaps uh, interacting with a god such as Asclepius or um, Zeus, or um, I think of the very well-known example of a man with a giant leg that he's perhaps giving as an offering that you can find on the cover of the Bodies of Evidence book that I co-edited a couple of years ago with Jane Draycott about these um, votive offerings. But they all come from... um, from, from Greece, and we don't really see that kind of process reflected in the evidence that we have from Italy. We don't see that relationship between human and deity perhaps being represented in iconographic form. And that may be because the setup of sanctuaries is, is different. These are not usually large sanctuaries. The offerings are quite humble. Things are perhaps more localised, potentially less specialised. 
But we also don't really get it in written form either. So votive inscriptions are certainly not very frequent in the period that I'm interested in and not really that much afterwards either when the inscriptions tend to be quite short. So we don't, I, we don't get the same kind of narrative in textual form either about the who, the what, the why, the where, and, and so on. So instead we get individual objects that can be interpreted as potentially being related to contexts like this, I think. So our tendency, for example, is to want to equate anatomical votives in particular with divine healing. Um, that might be skewing things um, a bit by trying to equate healing specifically with saving, um, when of course it could mean lots of different things. But certainly among the communities and the individuals of, of central Italy, it seems that the narratives and stories that are being told about the process of saving or healing, if they are indeed being told and not being reproduced and reflected in sort of material form. And how far do you think that this notion of saving is applicable to your Roman and pre-Roman deities? So would you describe the intervention that's being requested, that we think may be being requested in the votive offerings as saving, or do you see it as something different? Well, when I initially thought about this, I didn't really think it was applicable at all. But I think that's perhaps because my expectations were still being influenced by the sort of Christianising um, tendencies uh, in terms of how that word is interpreted that Theodore has already mentioned. But thinking about it a bit more, I suppose that anatomical terracotta votives, they do seem to be very focused on the short term solution, addressing something in the here and now or the very immediate future. And that, I think, seems to be um, encapsulated in what sort of Theodore is, um, is talking about. I think especially if we think these body parts might be connected with requests or thanks for assistance with health matters, for instance, so disease, illness, injury, impairments, and, and so on. So making an offering, making a, an agreement with the God involves some concept of intervention for the better that might be seen in these terms, again, very much in this world, not looking ahead to some sort of bigger idea about a person's fate. One exception here might be the models of swaddled infants that were dedicated alongside anatomical votives, and I've talked about those on an earlier audio, because they can be interpreted as a sort of combined offering of thanks for the sort of more immediate survival and successful moulding of a new infant, and a sort of material acknowledgement that the infant in question now belongs to the wider religious community that's represented by all the other offerings in the sanctuary. But even then, I think any sense of kind of future well-being seems to be quite limited. Um, and if the infant then requires further assistance or intervention from the divine, they'll have to establish another separate votive relationship going forward. So it's not really about sort of long-term protection. It's, again, this sort of cycle um, of, of maintaining a relationship with the gods. So in terms of providing a solution to the sort of ad hoc real-world problem, then, Yes, I think it's relevant. But I also think that the votives from Italy, especially these body parts that, um, that fragment the human body and sort of cement the relationship of a person with the divine, point towards perhaps slightly different understandings of those relationships that imply a much greater combination of divine and human into one in order to bring about some sort of change in circumstances. So what I'm trying to say is that the emphasis was perhaps not just on what the God brought to that relationship, but what people did as part of it. So the idea that votive cults, as part of that, you'd give a part of your body to the divine that was materialised as a model of a body part, and in return the divine would literally kind of permeate your living body with their 
protective powers, changing it in some way, suggests to me that people saw this process of gift-giving as about creating at least a sort of temporary, rather immediate blending with the divine, a sort of coming together rather than the sort of perhaps one-way process that just thinking about it as divine saving um, might imply. Now, of course, the gods are always the most powerful in that, but I think um, the fact that there's a, a sort of mutual relationship going on there. John, moving on to you and your perspective from religious studies and Christianity, could you talk to us about understandings of divine saving in Christianity? It's a big question. Uh, yeah, it is a big question. Uh, and, you know, as someone who works on the 20th century, it is fascinating to be with three people who, uh, who are classicists and, um, you know, really kind of uh, interesting conversation. So thanks. I think in Christianity, you sometimes recognize this tension between this worldly and otherworldly ideas about salvation. And you can see this tension, although I don't necessarily mean that in a kind of negative sense, played out in different expressions of Christianity globally. Um, not least when you recognize Christianity uh, in terms of its vernacular dimensions. So you have countless variations of Christianity as it is done and as it is thought of by individuals and by communities. So something of the roots of this tension can be seen in the uh, Judeo-Christian textual traditions in both the Hebrew Bible or what Christianity regards as the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if we think specifically about this worldly salvation, in the Old Testament, the language of to save or to deliver is used in all kinds of contexts. Uh, so that could be deliverance from oppression or slavery. Um, so, for example, in the Exodus narrative, or, or deliverance from exile, to be saved or delivered from poverty, um, to be saved, delivered from slander. Um, that's something that comes up in the Psalms quite often. Um, from sickness. So in the book of Isaiah, you have an account uh, of the healing of Hezekiah. So all kinds of examples of saving you know, in the here and now. Uh, in a kind of very real, ordinary, physical sense. In the Greek New Testament, uh, salvation, of course, is a key theme. And the Greek word soteria, understood by Christians in terms of salvation in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, is, is used throughout, but also with a broad usage. And I was quite surprised about this when I was thinking about it. Um, so salvation is salvation from sin, but also the effects of sin. Salvation is presented in this worldly terms, perhaps most obviously in the four Gospels. So in, in, in the Gospels, for example, Jesus is twice recorded as saving people from being drowned. Um, in Matthew chapter 14, you've got Peter recorded saying, Lord, save me from drowning. Uh, you've got in the four Gospels these various accounts of healing, exorcism, even raising from the dead, saving, you know, deliverance from death. Alongside this, you do have this strong emphasis on otherworldly salvation, of course, and you know, salvation being about eternal destinations. And this is certainly very evident um, in the epistles, this kind of message of salvation of all peoples by extension into um, God's covenant with, with Israel. So in 1 Timothy, you have Paul saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, a kind of, a kind of summary, if you like, of otherworldly salvation. So what I'm trying to say is that in Christianity as a textual tradition, you found, find salvation presented in really broad, wide-ranging terms, salvation of body and of soul. 
And I think in the history of Christianity, this is one of the reasons why in different times and in different contexts, you find different kinds of emphasis on what salvation is. So certainly you see this in the modern period as Christianity shifts uh, towards the global south and you have the rise of Pentecostal or Pentecostal-like Christianities. This has coincided with the translation of scripture into indigenous languages. So certainly, in, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, the rise of Pentecostal-like churches has had much to do with the translation of scripture from the English text into uh, indigenous languages. And whereas the Christian missionaries uh, in sub-Saharan Africa might have presented salvation in otherworldly terms, and perhaps had a kind of scientific, materialistic worldview of, of healing, many indigenous Christians discovered in the translated texts these stories of this worldly intervention, which resonated with existing worldviews and concerns for the ordinary and for the physical. So is there a material aspect of this concept in the Christianities that you've been studying, as well as these textual considerations? Well, we come back here to this idea of um, vernacular religion, religion as it's done, uh, which often has a really uh, significant material dimension. So if we think about votives, and I really like the way that Itai Weinrib um, describes votives as the materialisation of sentiment. I'm not an expert on votive religion at all, but um, I think it does say a lot about religion as it is done and how this can often involve synthesis, popular custom, blurring of boundaries. Certainly in the history of the church, it's, you know, it's replete with examples of conversion that also involve continuities with existing practices, customs and worldviews. And in early Christianity, my understanding is that you do find examples of continuities with pre-Christian traditions. Um, gifts to churches in early Christianity could be interpreted as, as votive. Um, so, for example, furniture, artwork, icons, small crosses, depictions of a healed body part. Uh, I think you often find these in particularly in Byzantine churches. Protestants were not always adverse to materiality of, Protestant, of uh, popular religion and work by Raymond uh, Menzer on the persistence of popular Catholic practices amongst rural French Calvinists in the mid-16th century demonstrates this. You have Protestant men and women attending votive festivals in Catholic villages and, and this kind of ingrained popular practice uh, even if the draw was uh, more about kind of celebration and performance rather than the, the worship um, or devotion itself. But you also have excellent research uh, that's being done on vernacular votive religion in Global South contexts. There's a study by Frank Graziano on popular ex-voto piety uh, towards um, miraculous images. So that's kind of images, statues with a, with a set of a kind of divine presence in popular Catholicism in Mexico. Uh, and here the devotion of the faithful can sometimes grate with local religious authority. So you have that tension between the kind of this worldly and the next worldly. Um, a wonderful example uh, in, in that work of, of a priest disapproving of an emphasis on petitionary rather than thanksgiving prayers by votaries. Um, and critical of the idea that God exists to remedy their worldly problems. But at the same time, in the local church, you have a stone plaque which has on it the words of Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are laboured and burdened, and I will give you rest. So I, you get something of that kind of tension there um, between this worldly and, and, and next worldly. 
Let me remind you that you're listening to an audio from the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion, and we're talking today about concepts of divine saving in antiquity and beyond. In the Southern California desert, about an hour and a half from Palm Springs, there stands a 50-foot-high mountain made out of straw, clay, and tens of thousands of gallons of colourful paints. This is Salvation Mountain. Emblazoned with messages including God is love and Jesus fire, Salvation Mountain is the work of so-called outsider artist Leonard Knight, who spent 30 years of his life building and maintaining the structure, which was also his home, until shortly before his death in 2014. Dr Sarah Patterson has written a book about Leonard Knight and his creation entitled Middle of Nowhere, Religion, Art and Pop Culture at Salvation Mountain. I spoke to Sarah about how Salvation Mountain came into being and I asked her to explain some of her ideas about the gift economy that's in operation at this sacred site. Salvation Mountain was created by Leonard Knight and Knight was born in 1931. Um, And by most people's accounts, he was a social dropout of sorts. I even think that's true of his own account of himself. Um, He dropped out of high school and kind of um, wandered around doing odd jobs um, and ended up in 1967 in California visiting his sister. And his sister's rule um, when he visited was that if he wanted to stay, he had to go to church with her. And so he kind of begrudgingly went to church with his sister. Um, And it was in 1967 that he had his born again experience, which was a really pivotal moment in his life. Um, He was driving down the freeway in California and was thinking about his sins and feeling very weighed down by his sins. And um, then he had a sensation of feeling those sins lifted from him. And he always talked about that experience in a really embodied way, um, that that lifting of sins made him realize that Jesus had given him a great gift. He became convinced fairly quickly that he wanted to do something, um, give back something to God and Jesus for the gift that he had received. I think the primary text on the mountain is God is love. That's a, a verse from 1 John 4, 8. Um, and, and the idea that God is love is definitely the idea that Knight repeated the most when people came. Um, and, and if you look at images of Salvation Mountain, you can see that the letters for God are actually um, their own adobe structure, so people can kind of engage with the God part and take pictures with their faces coming through. <laughs> coming through. Um, and then I think the second primary text on the mountain is in a big red heart on the front. Um, and it's his version of what, of the sinner's prayer. Um, and his version uh, says, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please come upon my body and into my heart. And I think that coming upon my body idea is, was really important tonight um, because he had 
had his born again experience in such an embodied way. Um, I think he wanted to encourage others towards a felt religion. So I think that those two texts work together. Um, he wanted the, the primary message to be that God is love, um, but he wanted people to engage that in a very physical embodied way. Part of what I argue is that it's through creating a gift economy that Knight helped um, set up a sacred space that allowed him a kind of prophetic platform to critique um, capitalism, which he felt put humans in hierarchical relationships. And I think that his belief was the, that the gift collapsed those hierarchies. And so he was, he saw everything to do with the mountain as a gift. So he said, if I need something, it just comes in. The mountain gives me clay. All the windows you see were out in the desert. All the sticks are out in the desert. The mountain gives me clay. The farmers give me straw and people give me paint. And I was really struck by this idea that the mountain was giving him clay. Um, I, I think that's what kind of clued me into this gift being foundational to how he understood things. Um, but he, he really saw people's gifts that they brought to him as evidence of um, his mountain being a special place. Um, so I think that the farmers bringing straw said to him, you're an artist and what you're creating is valuable. And um, I think when people brought him paint and that was um, when, I, when I would visit Salvation Mountain, I would keep record of what people were bringing and cans of paint was the most popular gift. Um, and people would, he would get especially excited when it was bright colors. So it wasn't the leftover paint from somebody's living room, beige living room wall. <laughs> um, but he really, I think, saw the gift of paint as confirmation of himself as an artist. And then I think that I would frame um, being a witness to his story as a gift that people gave to him um, that also confirmed that he wasn't some kind of crazy loner in the desert. Um, but I think the gift of witness and of going and telling other people his story um, confirmed to him that what he was doing was um, a real and valued gift for God. Um, and so his mountain was an expression of the gift God had given him. His mountain was his gift to the world to help spread that love. And then people um, in their gifts to him to help continue his work on the mountain um, confirmed that everything he was doing was real and important, an important part of history. Um, and so you could really sense that when people handed him um, gifts, he saw that as a, a point of human connection. 
And I think through that whole gift economy, he was trying to actualize how he thought people should be acting in the world. Um, so we shouldn't be acting in kind of a utilitarian, um, transactional way, um, but we should be offering each other gifts that affirm our humanity and continue that love that he wanted to create in the world. Theodora, what does uh, Sarah's interview extract make you think about in relation to your ancient Greek material? I'm interested in the idea of gift economy, which Sarah mentioned towards the end. Although we are talking about different religion separated by time and space from Greek religion, we still find a strikingly similar idea of giving something back to the gods from what we've received. And of course, this something can take very different forms in different settings. It's interesting how worshippers in different religious cultures would honour their gods by bringing gifts. And these gifts could range from something very small and humble to something much bigger, like an entire temple or the entire shrine of Salvation Mountain itself. I was looking at pictures of Salvation Mountain and, and I was particularly um, interested in images of um, the little shrines inside the mountain. They're completely filled with messages, drawings and other colourful objects brought by worshippers. They bring to mind the votive plaques and votive offerings that we find in some Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches even today. Although the context is completely different, the practice is comparable to that in ancient Greek religion. All these objects conveyed certain messages about the power of the divine. Each of them tells the story of the worshipper. Taken together, they might have the effect of encouraging belief in the power of the gods concerned. EJ, what did this make you think of? Well, like Theodora, I was also quite interested in the sort of the, the gift giving that seems to be involved in the mountain. And I'm particularly interested in the sort of materialness of the mountain. So on the one hand, this idea that it's kind of a cumulative creation as a series of gifts, I find that quite interesting. Like literally the materials that it is made out of have been given as gifts for, for night to, to use in its continual construction. And that kind of ongoing process of creation by one individual but with the help of the wider community makes you think a bit of the sort of communal build-up of offerings that we must have had at, at ancient sanctuaries and it's not quite the same but it draws attention I think to the sense of time that's often missing from our knowledge and discussion of the ancient material we tend to see all of that in one go and we find it quite hard to reconstruct the cumulative process that must have occurred so although it is a different context and it is very different I think it's a good reminder to think more carefully about that and then secondly kind of linked to that is this sort of idea of, of Leonard Knight as a sort of witness and that's definitely not something we can equate with ancient votive cult because as a concept as a, as a whole sort of idea of witnesses it's far too christianizing but i think we can't forget how powerful the impact of seeing votive offerings piled up in a temple or a sanctuary might have been on both regular and sporadic visitors and their potential role in kind of materializing something that's otherwise intangible so the the power of the divine giving it a very real material presence in the world and convincing others that votive practice could work perhaps actually had worked so they kind of attest to the power of the divine by giving some giving people something sort of physical to to interact with. 
John, what's your view? Well, I, I first came across Salvation Mountain when I watched the film Into the Wild, uh, which was um, a 2007 film, the story of um, Christopher McCandless. It's kind of a tragic story, really, but also beautiful at the same time. This is a, an American man who um, kind of treks through the American wilderness and finds his way to Alaska, and, well, I won't tell you what happens at the end. But, it, but on that journey, he, uh, he visits Salvation Mountain. So if you're interested in Salvation Mountain, it's a really, it's, you know, go and, go and see the film. Anyway... What I think is interesting about this is that this is a man who has had what sounds like an evangelical conversion experience. And you don't tend to associate this kind of material expression of of thanks, of gift giving, with that kind of form of Protestantism. You might give thanks perhaps by giving money, but to actually kind of build something like this as as an object representing that kind of sentiment of thanks is, you know, I wouldn't say it's particularly common. But what this does, I think, example does, is it points towards the way that in these kind of vernacular forms of Christianity, you get this kind of breaking down of boundaries between different forms, different traditions uh, that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I do have a further extract from the interview with Sarah where she talks about some of the Um, I suppose, theological underpinnings of Leonard Knight's project. Um, So we will put that on the website for share and you can go and find out more. They include Pentecostalism and Arminianism. Arminianism is this idea that um, there there is human agency when um, it comes to salvation, that you decide that you want to be converted. It's a decision that you make. Whereas with kind of reformed Calvinist understanding, understandings of Christianity, this is something that uh, God has kind of sovereignly decided. Mm. And that's something that Sarah was explaining about Salvation Mountain, Knight's idea that salvation was open to everyone, not just a chosen few. So that's a particular view that isn't necessarily reflected by all aspects of Christianity. So it's a, a really, really fascinating monument. So I'm now going to move on to ask you each to pick out one object, or it can be a literary text, that you've worked with that you think gives us a particularly valuable insight into this theme that we've been discussing, divine saving. Theodora. My favourite object is this relief from the sanctuary of Asclepius on the south slope of the Athenian Acropolis. It's made of pentatic marble and it's not very big, only about 27 times 50 centimetres. It's dated to the 4th century BC and is now displayed in the Acropolis Museum at Athens. On the left, we find Asclepius and two of his family members. Approaching them is a man followed by his muse drawing a wagon. We don't know who this person is. His name isn't actually preserved. But the way he is dressed in a short ketone and a conical hat strongly suggests that he earned a living by working outdoors. The right-hand side of the relief is only partially preserved. The animals are probably mules rather than horses, and they are drawing a wagon with heavy crossbarred wheels. It's been suggested that this might might be a farm cart. The inscription above the animals is unfortunately rather fragmentary. It mentions some mighty rocks and the fact that the dedicator was saved. 
I wonder whether he was saved from a landslide together with his animals, or whether he had an accident when transporting stones. The last line mentions a shrine. He probably came to Asclepius' sanctuary to be healed or to repay the divine favor. This is only a small slab of marble. It's nothing pretentious, but it must have cost a considerable amount to somebody earning a living by manual labor. I don't know how many months he would have to save up for this. To me, this is a valuable testimony of an ordinary individual's saving experience and personal piety. It tells the story of an anonymous individual who has left absolutely no trace in our literary records. It also challenges the tendency in some modern scholarship to see dedications as a means of self-advertisement and showing off. It seems to me that here, the individual was giving thanks to the gods and commemorating the gods' power. EJ, what have you picked this time? Well, it's difficult to pick out one single object, I suppose, from my area of research, this votive cult in early Roman Italy, especially anatomical votives. Certainly hard to pick out an example that we can really say for certain directly relates to the idea of divine saving. But one object type that does spring to mind is the open torso bust. So a series of near life-size and some miniature terracotta models that show the torso of a human figure, sometimes with the head and arms. But the torso itself is cut open in order to reveal a sort of mass of internal organs. And there's a good example in the Science Museum in London, one in the Getty, one in the Louvre. But they were originally dedicated alongside other types of body part in the sanctuaries of central Italy. And I think what I find particularly powerful about these objects in this context is the way in which they demonstrate the idea of opening oneself up to the intervention of the divine, and here quite literally in an almost surgical way. And in fact, one bust that's currently um, in Ingolstadt shows what appear to be suture holes down the edges of the incision. So even more, I think, than the fragments of limbs and the individual models of internal organs like bladders and wombs that we find at these sites, these busts seem to speak to the, the real vulnerability of the body and the person. They're literally cut open, exposing uh, the interior of the body, putting it out there at its most vulnerable, but also, I think, to its most open to the idea of inviting the divine in. And that may or may not be related to the idea of divine saving. We can't really know either way. But for me, the objects force us to think about quite how intimate those human-divine relationships might be, or at least how they might be conceived to be, and the prospect of being affected or even permeated by the essence of divinity perhaps isn't that far away from that. So they kind of reinforce to me the idea that human-divine relationships were about the two coming together, not just one having the power to intervene in the prospects or well-being of the other. John, have you picked a text to tell us about? Uh, I think to read the, the Exodus narrative, uh, I think, I mean, that has been such an influential text. Obviously, um, it's, a, it's a central story in Judaism, but it, it's also, Exodus is a theme that it appears throughout the New Testament. You know, it, it's, it's there in, in the uh, descriptions of the Last Supper, for example. But the Exodus as a kind of uh, example of God's deliverance appears over and over again as an example of salvation in, in the history of Christianity. 
I mean, one recent example for it would be in the um, the African American uh, civil rights campaigns of the 1950s and 1960s, where Exodus, the Exodus narrative, is a really um, powerful theme. That brings our discussion to a close. I'd like to thank Dr Theodora Jim for joining us at the Open University to tell us about her work on votives and divine saving in ancient Greece. And thank you too to John Maiden, Emma Jane Graham and Sarah Patterson for sharing their perspectives on this topic. You can visit the website of the Baron Thiessen Centre for the Study of Ancient Material Religion to find out more about some of the objects and texts that we've been talking about today, including some further extracts from my conversation with Sarah Patterson about Salvation Mountain. Thank you for listening.